Hello there. You might want to pull up a chair. I might have a little bit of extra noise today because the ceiling fan is going. Um, try to keep putting one foot in front of the other foot is quite a challenge with being gassed inside of my own home. So um, here's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be going over a few things first. I got a laugh out of the Royals and all their um, Charles is getting, um, she's getting to become king or queen today. <laughs> I love the way they wear all those royals. They wear all those medals and all the pomp and the big white horses and the what robe is he going to wear. What a, what a sideshow. What a utter, utter sideshow. And then Harry can't wear his military uniform so he penned, <laughs> he penned his medals to his jacket. <laughs> They really are something. They're psychopaths. They gotta show us who they are. They are losers. <laughs> okay, I have a new, I finally got around to doing the video, if all goes as planned. Just check for it on YouTube. My name on YouTube is the exact same as here. It's a video about all things to do with transgenders. And also, just a couple of quick things. I look more into the gulag. Why did I look into the gulag more? Well, because I should have looked harder before. The gulag was likely fake. Why did I look into the gulag again? Because I was looking into these royal people, and um, one of them had the name gulag. <laughs> so I thought, why did one of these royals have the name gulag, and why they named that farm the gulag? But I'll get back to that later. Okay, so another thing, Ho Chi Minh. They called him Ho for short. Ho, like in ho, like in whore. Yeah, he is a ho. Probably one of the most vicious psychopaths <coughs> walking around. <coughs> a total vicious, bloodthirsty psychopath. Ho, Chi Minh. Yeah, and they still honor him in that country. Yeah, he was, uh, he never should have taken a picture next to the OSS. The OSS was a pre-CIA. Gotta be careful who you take pictures next to. Because I would never take a picture next to the CIA. But anyway, so yeah, Ho Chi Minh is a ho, 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 ho. Yeah, not a good person. Nobody, stop having heroes, kids. They all will disappoint you in the end because they're all psychopaths if they're on the main stage. One thing I'd like to talk to you about today, I'm gonna to be talking about children. Um, you know, the best way to figure somebody out is to watch their actions, right? And I, it always amazes me how people let other people get by with just, you know, bloviating, just saying they're gonna do all these things, but they never actually do them, right? And a better way to interpret somebody's, what they're all about, is just to observe their actions, not in some, not in some nasty way, but just to observe. This person says a lot of things, but do they do any of those things, right? Um, and so I think a better way to interpret this line is that actions often speak more truthfully than words. So just be thinking about that, okay? Because people say a lot of things. Like in this country, all they talk about is, well, this is for the children. We want to get those children out of poverty. We want to take care of the children. Well, <laughs> actually the reverse is true, okay? Um, like for example, I made a commitment, I think it was around 2018 or so, I said that I would get to the bottom of what's going on with the children. Well, I may have been um, not everybody's perfect person along the way. <clears throat> Maybe at 72 I might have gotten a little bit nasty at times and stuff, but I stuck by my word, right? My actions spoke for my words. I said I was going to get to the bottom of it, and I continued working to get to the bottom of it. Those were my actions, right? 
So first, let me open with this little quote about how they actually think about us, okay? <clears throat> and this is from the General Education Board, okay? In 1913, the title was, The Country School of Tomorrow. In our dream, we have limitless resources, and the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hand. The present educational conventions fade from their minds, and unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive rural folk, R-U-R-A-L folk, meaning working class folk. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. We have not to raise up from among them authors, editors, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor lawyers, doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen, of whom we have an ample supply, meaning you are not welcome into our club. So, <clears throat> what I'm going to be talking about today is... Um, their actions toward children, right? Let's look at their actions. Let's take a big, wide-eyed look at their actions toward children, okay? And I have talked, let me scroll down here. Oh, let me talk about this child labor first. If I start scrolling around, I might get lost. Okay, child, child labor has been practiced throughout most of human history. And right now, go look for yourself. Just do a search for child labor, okay? Child Labor USA, they're rolling back the child labor as I speak right now, okay? They want children to be able to serve drinks to alcohol to adults. They want children to work between four and six hours after school. They want children to be many adults, so I won't get too far off on that deal, okay? So child labor has been practiced throughout most of human history. In the United States, through the first half of the 1800s, child labor was an essential part of the agriculture and handicraft economy. Why did they need all those children? Why? And also, another thing I've been working on is there have been a lot of people missing from this country. In the 17, 1800s, lots of census records came missing, right? Census records missing means people went missing, right? And they also did a very elaborate, I talked about this in the past, they came up with this really crazy way that these records so-called got lost, right? Well, I think a lot of people, I think when they started this cooking this thing up around the 1700s, when the psychopaths took over, I think a lot of people disagreed and a lot of people went missing during that key point because why else would those census records from the founding of this country go missing, right? Because I think there was a lot of conflict <laughs> at this turning point. But not my point for today, okay? But children worked on family farms as indentured servants for others also. To learn a trade, boys often began their apprenticeship between the ages of 10 and 14. I feel lucky, I'm 72, my mom was raised on a homestead in Montana, and her family, which was interesting, her parents, my grandparents, did not believe that children should be work servants. So my mom and her siblings did not work on the farm. They played. They would tell these stories when they would get together the holidays about how much fun they had. and. They, my grandparents just did not believe children should be slaves, so they were not treated as slaves. So I was not treated as a slave. I wasn't forced to get a job when I was in high school. My, I did a couple of babysitting jobs that I didn't like it, but we got allowances. 
that was one thing about the boomers. Our parents, maybe because of the way they were raised, most boomers got an allowance. And they knew we had that allowance because that allowance gave us the ticket price to go to those rock concerts, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so my parents had a completely different philosophy as far as child labor. So, um, so they feel like um, children are ideal employees because they can be paid less and were less likely to organize into unions. The movement to regulate child labor began in Great Britain at the close of the 18th century with the rapid development of large-scale manufacturing made possible the exploitation of young children in mining and industrial work. So um, many laws restrict these laws. Here, here's what happens: they do the laws and then they break the laws, right? And they, oh, whoops! We got we got to come up with some new laws. Oh boy! Hey, Marcos. Why don't you go? Why don't you go lay down for a second, honey? Come on, lay down. Come on, lay down. Lay down. Now's not exactly the right time. <laughs> I don't know what you. Come on, Marcus, please. Okay. He's a very good manipulator. Get back, please. Get back. Mark. Okay, stop. Stop. Not right now. Not right now. <laughs> Can you give it a minute. As sick as he is, he's still a con man. <laughs> He'll come up where I'm working and stare at me to see if I'll get up and get him a biscuit. Okay, so where was I? Um, many laws restricting child labor were passed as part of the progressive era reform movement. However, it took the Great Depression, a time when Americans were desperate for employment, to shake long-held practices of child labor in the United States. The most sweeping federal law that restricts the employment and abuse of child workers is the Fair Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. It came out under FDR. FDR did a lot of harm. He also um, carved out so healthcare workers, mainly women and black women, would not be included in the New Deal. So that's why they're still a very low-paid industry. Healthcare workers for um, home care, healthcare workers, you know, aging people need. <laughs> they're primarily women and black women. So yeah, they, they carved that out so they wouldn't get included. Probably because. A lot of black women did that work. Then they had the Infant Life Protection Act in 1897, finally empowered local authorities to control the registration of nurses responsible for more than one infant under the age of five. <laughs> under the Children Act of 1908, no, no infant could be kept in a home that was so unfit and so overcrowded as to endanger its health, and no infant could be kept by an unfit nurse who threatened by neglect or abuse is proper care and maintenance. A series of acts passed over the next 70 years, including Child Act of 1908, Adoption of Children Regulation Act of 1939, generally placed adoption and foster care under the protection of the regulation of the state. Sounds good, doesn't it? <coughs> well, let's take a look at reality. Okay. So, what do we have here today? Well, <laughs> some pretty crazy stuff. Okay, I, <clears throat> I have spoken in the past about why, how I think they have developed a workforce of budding psychopaths in this country. Now, just to be very clear, children who were adopted out, harvested, or given away, or they have this thing called baby farming, children who had this happen to them were the victims. Let's keep that at the top and center of our minds, okay? 
What happened to these victims? Well, they could have come out a few different ways. They could have come out from this experience overly empathetic, empathetic to the point <clears throat> that they would give everything away to help everybody they could because they received no help themselves. Or they could become a cold, hard, cruel person themselves because they felt like they got a bad deal as an infant, so they're going to take it out in the rest of the world. See how this could flip one way or the other, right? So because I've been wondering how we got all of these detached people in society. Well, it came out of their childhood, right? So what are we looking at today? Well, we have several things. We have, uh, there's a thing called child harvesting. Harvesting children. Yes, I spoke that right. H-A-R-V-E-S-T-I-N-G. You heard me right. There's also a thing called child laundering, which is going on right now. There's also something called baby farming. Farming for babies. And then I have spoken in the past about the orphan trains, okay? You can look for that in the title I spoke about a year or two ago, okay? As a recap, the orphan trains ran from 1854 to 1929, delivering an estimated 250,000 orphan or abandoned children to new homes. The orphan train movement was the forerunner of the modern American foster care system and led to the passage of child protection and health and welfare laws. So, from 1854 to 1929, and you will find that a lot of these things all were going on at the same time. It appears to me there was quite a war on children, right? We also had residential schools. Those were basically for children of color, right? Indian children. Children who were a little bit less, a little bit more tint to their skin, right? Those were called residential or boarding schools. Those happened between the late 1800s through the late 1970s. So we have a pretty good chunk of time here, right? Children being transported around, losing their mothers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How to develop a psychopathic society, rob them of their mothers. Okay, so let's start off here with orphanages. In the early days of institutions, in the early days of institutions for the poor and sick, orphans and children of destitute parents were usually cared for in the same facility as adults. And I've done shows about this. Go look for, in the title, they'll sell, say things like mental hospitals, okay? They had one big facility, which is interesting, and I still can't get over it. These facilities were in existence in the early 1800s, and the mass immigration started after that point. So somehow they got these buildings to lock us up early on, right? So, um, so they put everybody into one facility, right? And um, churches and religious associations opened separate orphanages in the late 1700s, okay? I'm kind of starting to think in all of this, they may have shaved off about a thousand years here somewhere, right? That'd be very easy to do. So if we're looking at a time frame between the late 1700s and now, there's probably about a thousand year gap in between here. Why do I say that? Well, because it makes sense, right? These people are destroying themselves right now with all kinds of diseases and stuff. Would not be possible for this to have gone on for that extra thousand years, in my opinion, but I'm still thinking about it, okay? So the first half of the 19th century saw these types of institutions in a few locations, mainly in urban locations. Before 1860, 
When no relatives or friends stepped forward, communities took over the care of orphans. This often was a case for children whose mothers couldn't adequately support them and whose fathers were unknown or absent. See, what they did was they put out this big fear to women saying, if you get pregnant out of wedlock, we're going to abolish you, banish you from society. So all these religious leaders put that fear into their veils. So if a woman got pregnant, they had very little options, right? So um, taxpayers expected even young children who became public charges to work to earn their keep. And all of these facilities were self-supporting. The kids, the mental people, all these people worked in these big facilities to pay for their own upkeep. <laughs> so. <clears throat> By the 1880s, most states had enacted laws requiring children to be cared for in separate facilities and adults. But during the 1880s, remember, they're still riding around on trains, right? Okay, so let's look at residential schools first. Boarding schools, they go by two names, either boarding schools or residential schools. Boarding schools also referred to as residential schools, and when you know the right words, you unlock a whole world. There are a million and a half stories connected with these residential schools. None of them I will be telling you about today. Go look for yourself. I'm sharing my work to encourage you to look further, not to encourage you to sit and stare at more devices and do nothing, but look further, okay? Please look further. These people deserve us to look at their legacy, okay? So, um, they were run, they were institutions run by the federal government and churches within Canada and the United States with the intention of absorbing indigenous children into dominant Western culture by displacing them from their culture. Between the late 1800s through the late 1970s, I didn't say 1870, I said 1970, most prominently, indigenous children were forcibly and violently removed from their families to attend these residential schools, with some native families even being coerced, coerced by the federal government and the Catholic Church into reluctantly handing their children over. During this time, there were over 350 schools operating within the United States. By 1920, there were 20,000 children attending the schools with the number tripling by just 1925. So 60,000 children, the numbers are hard to come by. I'm just giving you some estimates, okay? The Indian boarding school era stretched from the 1870s See, there's two things going on. They keep flipping the words around. The Indian boarding school era stretched from the 1870s, and now they're saying the 60s, okay? They were established by Roman Catholic missionaries <laughs> in 17th century colonial New France. Roman Catholic missionaries. Our people in charge right now, the 1%, the Romans, cook this up, Okay. In the United States, beginning in the early 1800s, the government stole Native American children from their communities and forced them to attend Indian boarding schools. Yeah, I think, and I'm just thinking, okay, I wasn't there. Um, I think that 
most of these children I'm going to be talking about today were in fact stolen. I don't know that many mothers just willingly just dump their kids off, okay? I think ignorance could lead to this, but I'm not going to go there right now, okay? So, according to, I like the way this chat GPT says this, they say, according to my sources, hundreds of thousands of indigenous children were taken from their families and sent to boarding schools run by the American government and churches to force assimilation. In Canada, nearly 150,000 indigenous children were forced. Um, let me see here. Tens of thousands of Native Americans' children were removed from their communities. Um, they were starved and whipped and made to do manual labor between I keep getting different dates, but look for between 1819 and 1969. Huh. Okay, because what happened was Canada got caught recently, okay? Um, the United States is just starting to do their reckoning, but I'll just read you a little bit about it. In response to the recent discoveries of unmarked graves at government-run schools for indigenous children in Canada, the United States is now facing its own moment of reckoning with its history of Native American boarding schools. So what did they do about this? They, they put in a... I just don't... These sellout people, right? What they do, they put in a Native American woman, a member of the Pueblo of Laguna tribe named Deb. Holland, as the, and she announced a federal Indian boarding school initiative to review the troubled legacy of federal boarding school policies. Efforts have been underway since 2016, we're right now in 2023, to return the remains of native children to their proper resting places. The federal Indian boarding school initiative was created in June 2021 by Deb Halen the United States Secretary of the Interior and a complete fucking sellout to investigate defunct residential boarding schools that housed Native American children that were established under the Civilization Fund Act. The initiative will serve as an investigation about the loss of human life and the lasting consequences of residential Indian boarding schools. This constitutes the first time the federal government has reviewed the scope of these policies and is an important step for intergenerational healing from the ongoing effects these policies cause. Well, no shit, Sherlock. No shit, Sherlock. Okay, so let's get to child harvesting. Child harvesting or baby harvesting refers to the systematic sale of human children, typically for adoption by families in the developed world, but sometimes for other purposes, including trafficking. The term covers a wide range of situations and degrees of economic, social, and physical coercion. Child harvesting programs or the locations at which they take place are sometimes referred to as baby factories or baby farms, and those words will unleash a world of horror. Child harvesting or baby harvesting is the systematic sale of human children, typically for adoption by families in the developed world, but sometimes for other purposes. 
Okay. This can involve abduction, fraud, coercion, or payment to the birth family. Child harvesting or baby harvesting. Um, God, I must have copied that a hundred times. <clears throat> okay, so when did child harvesting start? Okay. Baby farming. I was getting confused between, there's two terms here, child harvesting and baby farming, okay? <laughs> I know. Believe it or not, there's two terms, harvesting and baby farming, okay? I got confused. So I asked ChatGPT, what's the difference? It said, on the other hand, baby farming was a practice common in late Victorian Britain. It involved accepting custody of an infant in ex or child in exchange for payment. That's child baby farming. If the infant was young, this usually included wet nursing, breastfeeding by a woman, not the mother. Some baby farmers adopted children for lump sum payments, while others cared for infants for periodic payments. Okay, so baby farming, okay. But then also, baby farming, I'm going to get to more baby farming in a minute here, also has been taking place <clears throat> in the 1960s and 1970s. I found cases of baby farming in the UK where there were thousands of West African children were privately fostered by white families in the UK in a phenomenon known as farming. The biological parents were usually students in the UK who also had a job. They placed ad, ads in the newspaper looking for foster families to care for their children. <clears throat> So I will be getting into child laundering in a minute here. Child laundering is what's going on right now. So there's really just three things we're looking at. Laundering is the most common, okay? See, here's what a lot of these people have figured out. I don't know this for a fact, but trafficking um, is, uh, well, it doesn't require weapons, right? You just got to coerce a, a young innocent mother into handing over her baby, right? Um, a bunch of psychopaths zooming around a poor little mother um, could accomplish that task, right? So they use any trick they can to try to get these children out of the mother's hands into their own hands. So I looked into, uh, they have, <clears throat> and keep in mind, there's laws against this, right? The Hague Convention on Protect Protection of Children in Cooperation in Respect of Inter-Country Adoption is an international convention that deals with international adoptions. It, international adoptions, child laundering, and child trafficking in an effort to protect those involved from corrupt abuses and exploitation. Colombia, India, Ukraine, South Korea, and Nigeria are the three countries where these children seem to mostly be coming from, okay? Colombia, India, Ukraine, South Korea, and Nigeria. There have been cases of adoption irregularities reported in various countries. For example, there have been adoption scandals in India focused on suspicions of irregularities in an orphanage. Well, let's not focus on India because this isn't about India or any particular country. This is about an overall wide plan to what they do 
is these orphanages and stuff, or how, however, whatever vehicle they're using, once they get the baby from the mother, it usually goes to an orphanage or church or something like that, right? Or into these laundry places. Well, what happens then is these all go to these NGOs and non-government organizations, right? So it becomes pretty untraceable because the orphanages and stuff are dealing with baby brokers and stuff who are going out and harassing young women to grab their babies, and so it, it's a chain. So it would be impossible to really go through that chain because it would be a whole bunch of different workers, but the adoption place itself might appear fairly organized and clean, right? But behind it is a chain operation of everybody making money off of babies. So, baby farming, how do they farm babies? Well, they would run ads in the newspaper. An ad might say something like, married couple with no family would adopt healthy child, nice country home, terms. Yeah, what was baby farming? Baby farmers plied their trade through the newspapers of the day. An advertisement was placed by the baby farmer purporting to be one half of a respectable married couple willing to adopt or foster a young child. Of course, there was a fee to be paid. The more worldly wise understood this was often was code for the disposal of an infant. If a desperate woman couldn't find a midwife willing to smother her child at birth, a baby farm where the child was drugged and starved was an alternative. Sadly, many women in their naivety took the advertisements at face value and believed they were doing what was the best for their children. After a few weeks, some would receive a letter informing them that their baby had died of natural causes. Others would turn up months later to visit or collect their infant, only to discover the infant farmer had disappeared into the night. Though baby farmers were paid in the understanding that care would be provided, the term baby farmer was used as an insult, and improper treatment was usually implied. Illegitimacy and its attendant social stigma, brought on by the Roman Catholic Church, I imagine. Roman Catholic Church. I shouldn't have started joking there. It's all off my plate. Um. Okay. Social stigma were usually the impetus for mother's decision to put her child out to nurse with a baby farmer. Because see, then the mother couldn't find somebody to nurse her baby, so she wouldn't have a direct connection to the baby and people wouldn't know about it. But baby farming also encompassed foster care and adoption in the period before they were regulated by British law. Wealthier women could also put out their infants out to be cared for in the homes of villagers. And somebody did a big emphasis on wealthy women sending their infants out to villagers. And what they emphasized, and I would like to say very specifically, this was a person named Claire Tomalin, T-O-M-A-L-I-N, and she did a book. What she emphasized, the emotional distance this created, the emotional distance for those infants. Particularly in the case of lump sum adoptions, it was more profitable for the baby farmer if the infant or child she adopted died, since a small payment could not cover the care of the child for long. 
Spurred by a series of articles that appear in the British Medical Journal in 1867, the Parliament of the UK began to regulate baby farming in 1872 with the passage of the Infant Protection Act of 1872. In the United States, they passed an act requiring the registration of all boarding homes and of any illegitimate children given to the board in 1882. I'm sure that worked out great. It seems like it's always the U.S. and the U.S. and the U.K. cooking up this crazy evil stuff, isn't it? The practice of baby farming came under scrutiny in both Britain and the United States in the latter half of the 19th century. In 1868, the British Medical Journal published allegations that baby farming was just a form of commercial infanticide that the infants in the care of baby farmers were deliberately and severely neglected, leading to their deaths. The attention given to baby farming in part through some sensational cases of mass infanticide, and there are some really wild cases out there that supposedly, supposedly went to trial, and you'll have to go look them up yourself. So, um, so this brought up the prevention of cruelty to children in the United States and the Infant Life Protection Society in Britain. Baby farming is a historical practice of accepting custody of an infant or child in exchange for payment. Less commonly in Australia and the United States, but I think the United States and Britain, I keep finding them as two of the most common ones, okay? Um, because they both came under scrutiny in these two countries about the same time. Um, so, um, and a large percentage of them supposedly died. Uh, some baby farmers seemed to have done the best they could to raise healthy children, but were restricted in their ability to provide basic care for the infants by poor parents who could afford only minimal payments and did not even necessarily pay those. So, um, equally nebulous let me see, scroll down here, are the intentions of the parents who turn their babies over to the care of baby farmers. There was a British reformer in 1890 who claimed that most mothers were snared by seemingly respectable procurers who then turned the infants over to nefarious baby farmers. And I think that's probably more closer to the truth they had these front people who appeared very respectable. Some mothers, however, infamous creatures, according took, took to ba- looked to baby farmers to rid them of the problem of an unwanted, sometimes illegitimate infant. Extreme poverty caused some well-meaning women to seek the help of respectable-seeming baby farmers, sometimes hoping to make contact with the child and the care- child's caregivers. The same poverty brought other parents to clearly disreputable baby farmers as a means of committing infanticide directly. So poverty brought them to take them to these baby farmers to commit baby death, right? With the promise of infant death sometimes being openly discussed by the parents and the baby farmer. Now remember, this came from their historians, right? Other infants were sent to baby farmers so the mother could attain a job as a wet nurse, a relatively easy and well-paid job. Infant, infanticide 
was very difficult to prove, particularly in cases of neglect. In central Middlesex, England, in 1867, 94% of all murder victims were under one year old. So yeah, um, they started appearing in the press, supposedly. Okay, let's talk about child laundering, which is going on right now. And this is quite a big deal. Child laundering. When you think it can't get any worse, they come up with laundering children. Child laundering is a global issue, and there have been highly publicized cases in the past decade. For example, Guatemala, China, and Com Cambodia have been associated with problems related to inter-country adoptions. In August 2020, <coughs> excuse me, in August 2020, the United States Department of Justice charged three women in Ohio for their alleged roles in scheming to corruptly and fraudulently procure adoptions of Ugandan and Polish children through bribing Ugandan officials and defrauding U.S. adoptive parents, U.S. authorities, and a Polish regulatory authority. Well, that sounds really great, right? They caught them. They caught a couple women in Ohio. Well, I'm glad they got caught, but it doesn't mean much, okay? Child laundering is a scheme, whereas inter-country adoptions are affected by illegal and fraudulent means. It may involve the trafficking of children and the acquisition of children through payment, deceit, or force. And this is what's going on right now, okay? The children may be held in sham orphanages while formal international adoption processes are used to send the children to adoptive parents in another country. Child laundering rings are often large with multiple hierarchies of people motivated by the large profits from the black markets of inter-country adoptions. With Westerners willing to spend thousands of dollars to adopt a child, there is enough monetary incentive to extend the laundering ring from the middle classes to societies from more affluent groups. So now it's become a middle class game, right? Go over there and get your own baby, right? Well, everybody's becoming infertile because of radiation and everything we've given us, right? So people wanting babies is not the problem because people are having trouble having babies because we're in a uh, eugenics <laughs> a big experiment, right? Okay, child laundering is highly controversial. Yeah, I bet it is. Um, while many argue that these children are being treated as a commodity and stripped of family contact, others argue that ultimately the children will live a more affluent environment and have more opportunities as a result of this adoption. Well, isn't that always their deal here, right? The ends always justify the means, right? Too bad they've emotionally traumatized this child forever to give it some more baubles. I think most children would rather be poor and be with their own mother. But then, of course, they've done a pretty good job of teaching children these days to actually hate their parents if their parents are working class and not rich like all the psychopaths on the screen. So, yeah. There, this is a comp, and, and I got this from their Wikipedia page, right? None of this I have cooked up. None of this I have gone into fiction writing over, okay? There is a complex hierarchy within the child laundering business, which includes governments, orphanages, intermediaries, birth families, and adoptive families. 
the people who oversee these child laundering rings are estimated to make 2000 to 20000 per overseas adoption. Therefore, it is advantageous for these individuals to have the necessary language and social skills in order to work closely with Western adoption agencies. Intermediaries are crucial in acquiring the child because their job is to locate extremely impoverished parents who may be willing to sell their children out of necessity. Often the people involved in recruiting and managing the adoption rings are local, middle, or upper class citizens and they often have a negative view of the very poor. Within our own class systems they have it set up so the, the people and I found this myself when I left Silicon Valley and became the working class. I was different than the white collar class, right? <laughs> yeah, people do treat you very, very differently. Almost like you've lost part of your brain. When you decide to not make as much money in this country, it gets viewed as you maybe have lost part of your brains, right? How could you do that? How could you leave this well-paying area? Well, you just do it, right? Often the people involved in recruiting, okay, I agree with that part. Therefore, recruiters can rationalize taking these children from the biological family on the grounds that the child will be better reared in the West. Many members of foreign governments are bribed to hasten these illegal adoptions and also to ignore the illegality of these criminal organizations. Yes, you other countries who are giving these people your own children to come to this country, are fucking losers, okay? You're psychopaths. You're giving up your children for money to have them import into this country for what? A life of abuse? You can tell yourself whatever you want, but it does not turn out well. These children are often taken to orphanages, which arrange the adoptions where they are sometimes severely mistreated. Finally, after a forgery of documents to falsify a child's identity, the child is sent to the West to be united with his or her adoptive parents. So the whole time, this kid is really floating around on their own in some orphanage alone without their mother, right? There are several different ways by which orphans are acquired and later sold within the adoption system. Parent nations are almost always poor, and in most places, these countries also have a system where impoverished parents can temporarily care for their children by placing them in orphanages, hostels, or schools. That's, that's a trap. They lure these poor people into these places and say, oh yeah, come on in, we'll take care of your kids. This community provides poor children with care, housing, and food until the family is in a better economic situation. In these cases, parents may have no intention to sever their parental rights or abandon their children. However, these institutions may take advantage of the child and family's economic and social vulnerability to illegally profit by making the child available to overseas adoption markets, netting orphanage, orphanage owners thousands of dollars per child. Another instance where children are wrongly deemed orphans is when said children become lost or separated from their families. Although <coughs> Excuse me. Although institutions are required by law to make an effort to locate the family, there is virtually no way to assess whether they actually do this. 
if these initial efforts to locate the family fail or are, de or are declared as failures, the institution then has the opportunity to capitalize on this by putting the child up for adoption. Another way in which orphans are acquired is through the outright purchase of the child. The recruiters for these adoption rings seek out poor pregnant women and offer to pay for their child. These parents may be led to believe that they will be kept in contact with the child and receive financial support from the adopted parents. Likewise, they may be told that they will eventually be able to migrate to live with their children once he or she has grown, presumably in a more economically developed nation. Through these methods and more, recruiters lead the birth parents to believe they are providing a better future for their child. Treatment of children orphanages. In investigations by the United States ICE agents, those lovely ICE agents, ICE agents, have indicated that the conditions in many foreign orphanages involved in child laundering are inhumane. Well, the ICE agents say that. they got to be pretty bad. Have you seen those cages they built for kids at the border? Obama built those cages, by the way. They just want to blame Trump for the cages, but they're all in on the deal. And there, there again, look at their actions, right? They say they care for children, yet they're comfortable putting children in cages at the border, right? Um, Okay. Investigations. Uh, one investigation found the children, one investigation, were unwashed and unclothed, unprotected from malaria. I'm not going to read the whole thing. There was no experienced nurse caring for the children, and the investigator termed it a stash house. With the thousands of dollars that these orphanages receive for each adoption, the conditions children are kept in could be vastly improved for just a fraction of the racketeer's profit. Yeah, well, the United States handing out advice to other countries, it's like a pretty bullshit move, isn't it? I mean, this is the center of child abuse in the United States, so I don't think they should be talking about any other countries, personally. I think the U.S. should keep their boco loco shut, crazy mouth shut. Okay, so the United States is responsible for most inter-country adoptions in the world. Now, why are they coming to this country? Well, because adopting within this country is mainly for the rich from other countries. Long story short, but people come to this country, the gold standard for surrogacy and infant adoptions is the United States. <laughs> it's a scam, okay? It's a scam. They, they sold it with no studies or surrogates. No, no, nobody knows anything about what's going on, right? So um, all they know is they want to get their hands on babies. Okay. Uh, in many cases, the prospective adopted parents are motivated by a sense of altruism, coupled with their desire to overcome infertility and fulfill the Western standard of a nuclear family. And yeah, it's very, and I don't want to get too far into this because I find it very annoying, um, the arrogance of people. Um, and, well, if you're a gay couple and you get married, that's great for you, right? But where, where does it become your right to get some woman to deliver that baby for you? And I, I should stop this conversation right now because I'm not trying to pick out people who have in the past adopted children. What I'm trying to say is, it's a very deserved kind of thing. It's like, well, we deserve to have a family, so we're going to go to this poor country and we're going to make that happen, right? We deserve that baby. 
and people are getting paid to freeze their eggs for later to have babies later, which is all a false promise, right? None of that stuff is reality. They don't know what they're doing in the freezing embryo stuff. So yeah, so people are getting convinced to do a lot of things. But if you let yourself get convinced of things, it's because you didn't really look for yourself, did you? Okay, so um, prospective adoptive parents are placed with the orphans through adoptive agencies, brokers, and online agencies. Due to the fact that most of the children adopted overseas are very young, they will not have any memories from their birth families. Without a paper trail and without any input from the child, it makes it nearly impossible to detect whether a child is truly an orphan. So, if you want to look for more information, the Hague Adoption Convention has been widely adopted to regulate international adoption. The convention seeks to establish certain rules for international adoptions and to combat child laundering. It seeks to establish an indirect solution to abuses. However, the Hague Convention fails to require any effort to preserve the family before turning to international adoption. And therefore, the convention mostly represents an anti-trafficking treaty. In 2000, the U.S. Congress enacted the Inter-Country Adoption Act. I'll give you those words again. Please look it up. Inter-Country Adoption Act in order to implement the ideas, the ideas, okay, the ideas of the Hague Convention. However, this act is limited to the fact that the United States cannot enforce any measures against the sending country if corruption in the adoption process is discovered. Imagine how that works out, right? If they find corruption, it's just, oh, it's okay. We, we, got, we got the kids. That's, that's all we're concerned about, right? We got the babies across into our border in the United States, so hey. And this is stance of the United States, and right from their own words. The United States State Department does not consider child laundering to be a form of human trafficking as it is a non-exploitative result. Furthermore, it is sometimes seen as a humanitarian act regardless of the circumstances surrounding the acquisition of the child. And at this point, you have to envision the top of my head is exploding, okay? The U.S. does not consider child laundering to be a form of human trafficking, right? It is seen as a humanitarian act well, yeah, because the people making the decisions got yanked from their own mothers, so they don't know what it's like being raised by a mother because they're psychos, right? The adoption agencies in the West are operating within a completely legitimate sphere. <laughs> I'm glad I, I was almost going to take a sip of my coffee, and I would have been spitting it all over my screen at this point. So they're saying... The adoption agencies in the West are operating within a completely legitimate sphere and have no way of knowing whether they are a party to this human rights violation. Yes, it is the United States policy. If you don't look, you'll never have to tell the story, right? Same way they have never done studies about things like, oh, I don't know, smart meters, cell phones, <laughs> nuclear weapons. However, let me finish this bang-up statement here. 
Therefore, the United States does not have the jurisdiction to prosecute these agencies working in the developed countries. See, it's, it's nice how this has all been legally figured out, right? However, the State Department does caution that international adoption should be considered... Oh, wait a minute. The State Depart Department of State does caution that international adoption should be considered should be considered when it is in the best interest of a child and domestic adoption options have already been evaluated. So the State Department is saying <laughs> that you should consider international <laughs> international adoptions. That's something else, isn't it? They got the green flag from the United States government. Child laundering is a global issue and there have been highly publicized cases in the past decade. Guatemala, China and Cambodia highly exemplifying the problems associated with inter-country adoptions. From 1999 to 2001 in Guatemala, there have been, let me see, 1999 to 2000, that's about, what, 11 years, 29,731 adoptions of Guatemalan children. And then it breaks it down into the births. Before Guatemala's adoption of the Hague Convention in 2007, child laundering was a widespread and notorious issue in Guatemala. <laughs> so I guess that Hague Convention really got Guatemala in check, didn't it? Okay. All it did was give them some rules to know how to bend, right? Okay. The recruiters are called jaradoras or buscadoras. And these individuals often work with medical personnel, you know, the people with those snakes on their logos, who give the recruiters information about where vulnerable women, so this is great, the medical personnel give the recruiters information about where vulnerable women can be located. For every child procured, the buscadoras earn anywhere from $5,000 to $8,000. Some of the methods included women being told their baby did not survive childbirth or the outright purchase of a child. These women never received much in compensation for their child as most of the bribes went to the baby brokers who processed most of the paperwork in the adoption process. Since signing of the Hague Convention, new laws were passed by Guatemala to create new standards for the adoption process. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it just seems to me that there's a million laws on the books, but they always seem to want to keep us busy by thinking they're coming up with new laws, right? All adoption agencies are to be have to be accredited and be accountable for their actions, as well as detailed and accurate financial records. Additionally, foster care has now been more accountable to the oversight of the central authority who also established in order to ensure Guatemala's compliance with Hague Convention rules. Yeah, and as the children continue flying out of Guatemala, children who have been legally approved for adoption by a judge, <laughs> you know, the guy in the black robe with his nod to Saturn, um, are matched with a prospective adoptive family by a team made up of social worker and a psychologist. Well, that's good to know. Following the restructuring of the Guatemalan government, Guatemala ceased all foreign adoptions. In 2001, the government announced that authorities would be reviewing cases that had been in the works since 2007. 
they would not be accepting any more cases. As of 2011, the United States was no longer processing adoptions from Guatemala, joining in the ranks of other countries who had placed moratoriums on Guatemalan adoptions. Well, that's only because Guatemala got caught. So what are they doing now? Well, they're sending those kids alone on their own by foot across the border, right? China. China has experienced rampant child laundering in past decades, although now it is considered to be better regulated than most other sending countries. China reports about 10,000 kidnappings or abductions a year, although the true numbers are considered by demographics to be much higher. So the human adoption scandal, let me see. The official statistics are only based on those cases which have been resolved, but it is very difficult to prove that any individual has been kidnapped and then laundered. Most of these children are from poor families in the rural areas, taken as a result of the profits to be made from Western adoptive families. And there's also this deal going on in China that I'll interject here, that uh, what they're doing is because of the one birth uh, policy for so long, farmers and middle class and poor people are also buying babies because they didn't have their own babies because of this one child law and they want their own child. And also, it's made China's military more complicated because only having one baby, people didn't want to give up that one baby to go into the military. So there are a lot of, a lot of things out of this one baby deal. But there was this thing called the Hunan, H-U-N-A-N, adoption scandal, brought many of these issues to light. As orphanages were sending intermediaries into rural areas to acquire children who were then moved around Hunan, and given fraudulent documents in order to cover up their illicit origins. So it's working both ways. I believe that, uh, I just know it anecdotally that it's a big deal in China, these kids. Some argue that the issue of child laundering in China stems from the one-child policy, which created, which was once a surplus of children needing adoption. However, since the demand for Chinese children has increased, institutions have resorted to methods like kidnapping in order to meet customer demand and maintain profitability. This logic has been criticized on the grounds that the system of international adoptions has, in fact, created a mechanism whereby poor families in China are exploited in order to feed the Western demand for Chinese children. This view holds that Western ethnocentricity justifies Justifications for these behaviors falsely imply that the child will have a better life in the West without any connection to the biological family. It is a crime to be raised by poor people, according to these people, right? Oh, let's talk a little bit about Cambodia and Sri Lanka. And remember, these are the countries that they are reporting on. This is a worldwide problem. While most instances of inter-country adoption take two or more years to process, Cambodia has made a policy of expediting this process, often in as few as three months. Human rights activists consider Cambodia to be one of the countries with the most corruption involved in inter-country adoption. I am not saying this is true. This is what they're saying, okay? They have expressed that recruiters target poor families 
and women in their efforts to gain access to children. But see, it doesn't sound like a kind of a common theme going on here, poor women and children. Tactics such as the overripe purchase of babies for as little as $20 or deception of birth parents into relinquishing physical custody are systematically employed. One particular case that gained media attention focused on a child laundering scheme run by an American woman named Laurel Galindo. Galindo was prosecuted in the United States and convicted of material misrepresentation as to the orphan status and identities of infant adoptees over the period of 1997 through 2001. Galindo was sentenced to 18 months in prison, a fine, <laughs> and required community service. Currently, the United States, formerly one of the most common destinations for Cambodian adoptees, no longer processes adoptions from Cambodia. So what do you do in a case like that? No, I don't know. You give a, a birth certificate from some other country right next door to Colombia now, don't you? These rules are meant to be evaded. Sri Lanka. They made the worst deal on earth with the Chinese. In the period of 1970 to 2017, 11,000 babies from Sri Lanka were exported to Western company, countries, mainly mainly those in Europe, the Netherlands, Sweden, Switzerland, and Germany. The Netherlands received the most children, including over 4,000 babies. Due to poverty and other social and cultural problems, many Sri Lankan families were forced to give up their children for adoption. Adoption agencies and certain... I'm sorry, he's breathing so hard next to me, but... He's trying to get settled. It'll just take him a minute. We're having a really tough time around here. Adoption agencies and certain notable people in Sri Lanka were identified as intermediaries in the doc. See, this is a common theme. All these people, all these people lining up to destroy these children's lives, right? All, all in their minds thinking it's for good, right? Okay, Mark, settle down. It's okay, honey. Yeah, that's a good boy. It's okay, honey. Okay, um. As the demand was high, many adoption agencies and the intermediates associated with them started baby farms where birth mothers and stolen infants were held. See, we're back to the baby farm business, okay? Many hospitals in Sri Lanka, especially those in districts, I'm not going to name the districts, either stole infants or coerced birth mothers into putting their children for adoption. Government officials, tour guides, lawyers, and medical staff have all been implicated. Well, that's all I'm going to say about Sri Lanka because that is the plan in all these countries. The babies are being distributed from hospitals, right? This is not a complicated plan. And, and they, some of these people act like they're having their own babies, right? They walk in with a fake baby bump, and they walk out with a real live baby. Well, everybody is facilitating this, right? Your doctors, your, everybody's facilitating. But not everybody in that hospital, right? What it does is only certain people know certain things, okay? So they, um, these babies were 
bought from others for around $30 by intermediates and sold to foreign couples for double that amount. After the year 2000, many babies who were adopted out of the country returned to Sri Lanka to meet their biological parents to find that the documents used in their adoptions had been falsified and the biological parents they had hoped to meet were not real. In 2017, the Dutch TV program Zimbia, Z-E-M-B-L-A, revealed the adoption fraud. Both the Dutch and Sri Lanka governments opened investigations, during which the Sri Lankan government admitted that the baby farms were present. Many additional adoptees have since gone in front of the court to ask for investigations about their adoptions. Well, according to the Hague Convention, the Convention's concern is that adoptions not subvert or best interest and rights of children through the illicit practice of abducting. So the Hague Convention is very against this. Now keep that in mind. So, it is important to know that um, the Hague Convention has this all covered, okay? So if there's any irregularities, it's probably because somebody made a mistake, right? Just an innocent mistake. There are various measures taken to combat child laundering. For example, the U.S. Department of the Treasury brings significant financial expertise to the fight against human trafficking and is committed to leveraging the department's economic tools to target, disrupt, and counter those who undermine American values and engage in human trafficking. Treasury has various tools and offices in, to support the missions of combating human trafficking, including anti-money laundering and sanctions authorities. So this all sounds great. The U.S. has all of these things, uh, brings financial expertise to the fight, right? To the fight against human trafficking. Well, in addition to the Hague Convention on Intercountry Adoption, the United Nations to the rescue, the U.N. General Assembly adopted the UN protocol to prevent, suppress, and punish trafficking in persons, especially women and children, commonly referred to as the Palermo Proyecto, P-L-A-R-P-A-L-E-R-M-O, protocol, P-R-O-T-O-C. So that is what the UN says, okay? So, um... On the other hand, international adoptions is a legal process where an individual or couple becomes a legal and permanent parent of a child who is a national of a different country. So, yeah, the U.S. is certainly, um, well, okay, Let, let's, let's, let's just talk facts and facts, okay? What was the U.S. doing in Afghanistan all that time but harvesting poppy, right? So, I don't know. I wasn't there. You weren't there. But... The U.S. government is very dirty in the poppy business. They're very dirty in the drug business, right? Very dirty in the drug business. So why wouldn't they be in the child laundering business? Can you answer that for me? I mean, they do all these other things around the world to torture and harm people. So is the U.S. government bringing up these charges on these people because they, they, they got in, in their own business? So are they bringing charges on these couple people to make us think like some action's being taken? Would really behind it all? Possibly. Just speculating, just speculating here. Who would really be running the more profitable child rings? Well, 
Take a guess, right? Take a guess. Um, there have also been examples of interadoption. Uh, yeah, those women from Ohio. Yeah, well, you know, all I could find are a few little cases, okay? Um, uh, and I looked into what's required. If you're flying into the United States, all children, infants will require a passport. Well, these things are with the exception of lawful permanent residence. I don't know. I'm not going to get in the weeds here because uh, it says child laundry is an illegal and unethical practice that involves the acquisition of children through illegal means for the purpose of adopting, trafficking, or exploitation. And yeah, it's a. Uh, I think that if you were to ask me, I would say that psychopaths are basically capable of just about anything, right? When you don't have a conscience and all you want to have is this lust for money, um, what are you going to do? I would think that um, trafficking children would be a pretty easy game to play, right? <laughs> How hard is it to control an infant? Um, and I was looking for what happens because I talked about that case of a child who came here from China. And uh, basically, what happened with that child that came here from China um, is that it just got rehomed to some other people. The people just, you know, people just run ads and rehome these children. On one hand, they say they don't do it. On the other hand, it seems like they do do it, right? So I was looking to see if there was anything technical, right? And what they call it is this. Um, if something goes wrong in the adoption, it's called, sorry, I also realize that when I pick up that cord, I'm making this annoying noise, but anyway, so uh, adoption disruption or dissolution refers to situations where an adoption process ends before or after it has been legally finalized. Disruption refers to the circumstances that occur when an adoption process is stopped after the child is placed in an adoptive home, but before being finalized legally. So I think what happens is there's this limbo which goes on here, right? That somehow through this process, that child that came in from another country gets lost. So if you're sending children from other countries thinking that it's safe here, I would advise you to look more carefully because I think, I think, I don't know this, but I think the plan is this. The kids get here, there's not real, not much real documentation to where they're going and how they got there, right? And so I was, I kept querying this and I finally got an answer. It is possible for adopting parents to place a child on their own without any agency involved. This is called an independent adoption. In an independent adoption, a child is placed with adoptive parents directly by the birth parent. There is no adoption agency custody of the child. The birth parent is choosing to place the child directly with specific oh. adoptive parents. And then I want to say, however, it's important to note that consent to adoption is regulated by state statutes, not by federal laws. See, isn't that interesting? Now, why isn't it by federal laws? Well, because if they let each state decide on their own, some states can have good laws, some states can have very bad laws. The requirements for independent adoptions vary state by state. However, some, oh, shoot. 
However, some common requirements include undergoing pre-adoption certification classes and a home study from the state licensed professional. Well, I think that it is pretty easy to do. And it said, it is important to note that advertising laws, because people advertise these children on Facebook, I've talked about this in the past, vary from state to state. It's important to be aware if your state has any laws regarding advertising. That's how they're working all this, right? It's all about the marketing and advertising. And when I say it's a good idea to identify an adoption attorney ahead of time. <laughs> so um, what you're looking for is the ICPC, Interstate Con Compact on the Placement of Children. It is an agreement among all 50 states governing the Interstate Placement of Children. ICPC is what you're looking at. If families live in one state are adopted from another, yeah, I don't think. Okay, so let me talk a little bit about the trauma. I look for hours and days and weeks and months. What they're doing is they're gathering up this data. Like in the United States, they just they just now admitted the Indian boarding school problem, right? So what they're going to be doing is gathering evidence, right, and talking to their people to identify how screwed up these kids really got, right? So I only found one piece that I'll read to you now, and then I'll be closing this show off. What is intergenerational trauma? We are a trauma-based society, and it has a lot to do with our pineal gland, which I will be getting back to more about later. Intergenerational trauma, a phenomenon in which descendants of a person who has experienced a terrifying event show averse emotional and behavioral reactions to the event that are similar to those of the person himself or herself. These reactions vary by generation, but often include shame, increased anxiety and guilt, a heightened sense of vulnerability and helplessness, low self-esteem, depression, suicidality, substance abuse, disassociation, hypervigilance, intrusive thoughts, difficulty with relationships and attachments to others, difficulty in regulating aggression, and extremely extreme reactivity to stress. The exact mechanisms of the phenomena remain unknown. Isn't this amazing? This is 2023, and these people have not really studied this stuff, right? Why? Because that's the plan, not the bug in the system. The plan is to emotionally traumatize us along with the other eugenics, right? The exact mechanisms of the phenomena remain unknown, but are believed to involve effects on relationship skills, personal behavior, and attitudes and beliefs that affect subsequent generations. Also called historical trauma, multi-generational trauma, and secondary traumatization. So they really have not defined it. It's kind of, isn't it funny, huh? The people doing the trauma to us have not really quite checked out exactly what they're doing, now have they? So I am going to um, close off for now. I'm going to be singing a song. It's not singing it, <laughs> playing a song. <laughs> the day that I sing a song, you know that it's all over, okay? This song is from The Doors, and it's called People Are Strange. I, I feel like I'm in some sort of other orbit. Now, I'm certainly not complaining. I agreed to come here and do this work, right? I am following my commitment. My actions are speaking the same as my words, right? Always watch for those actions. If you have somebody that says a whole lot of stuff, but you don't notice them doing a lot of stuff, 
that's because their words are saying things that are not true, right? Because they're not following their words with actual actions, now are they? And people criticize me for being a little bit too action-oriented, right? I see something that needs to be done, and I get those feet pounding that pavement to figure out how I'm going to resolve it. That's why I call it my one foot in front of the other process. You would be surprised how much you can get done when you dedicate yourself and cut out the BS. I found that people who raged on and on about how much they wanted the truth ran, ran like scared rabbits the minute the truth darkened their doorstep. So this is the doors. People are strange. Oh, it would help if I had it. <laughs> the show that I remember to have the audio on and everything plugged in and stuff will know that something's going on if I get the audio right, right? And don't forget to check out my new show over on YouTube. It'll be under Psychopath in Your Life. Okay, here we go. See, that's the thing. I, I'm consistent in my patterns, right? here is buckle down don't stand out and come up with a very solid plan the banks are tumbling like dominoes right now it's all part of the plan not the bug in the system be safe out there and don't forget to give them hell <laughs>